Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Lady Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Jocelyn Pearl, and we have a great interview in store for you guys today. I chat with Christine Cucinata. She's a postdoc in the Tsukiyama lab at the Fred Hutch, where she studies gene regulation in yeast. She's also the organizer of Fragile Nucleosome, a community of scientists who study chromatin. It's an awesome online community that she started during the pandemic and it also has a seminar series that's available for anyone to watch on youtube we love seeing folks find their community and their niche and work together to solve problems in science i learned a lot from christine today and i hope you do too if you enjoy our content here at lady scientist podcast please give us a subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts thanks so much for listening well, today it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Cucinata to Lady Scientist Podcast. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. This podcast is like really exciting. I've really enjoyed listening. Um, so it's cool to be here. <laughs> well, I've been following you on Twitter for a little while now, and I'm kicking myself for not inviting you to Lady Scientist Podcast earlier. But I, I love uh, your content. You study gene regulation in the Tsukiyama lab at the Fred Hutch. And you're also one of the organizers of Fragile Nucleosome, which is this awesome YouTube channel with videos of um, different people working in this gene regulation space and really on the basic science side of things. So I'm excited to dive into all of your work um, across the board here, maybe we can get started with Fragile Nucleosome and how this came about. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, Fragile Nucleosome is this online seminar series, and we do have a YouTube channel and um, community too. And it kind of came about, well, definitely came about during the pandemic um, when everyone was locked down. Um, it originally started because before COVID, Twitter was like really like about, well, for scientists, it was like about discussing science for the most part um, and new papers in the chromatin field and um, transcription field as well. And um, it kind of got washed out by COVID talk and it still is very much COVID talk, um, which is great. It's important to have that conversation. But I felt like we were kind of missing like a chromatin and transcription niche, like little corner again. And so I was just asking people if like, they would be interested in joining a discord server about chromatin um, and gene regulation and so I just tweeted about that and then um, I started it and yeah a bunch of people wanted to join um, you know it was very early in the pandemic as well it was in 2020 so everyone was at home being not bored but just being on the internet I guess um, and so that's pretty much how it started and then about maybe a week or so into it um, uh, Hitton Madani at UCSF asked if we had a seminar series and he volunteered to give a talk which was fabulous um, I, he had a really cool uh, talk on um, epigenetic memory over evolutionary time which was really interesting um, 
but uh yeah so that's that happened and then we kind of gathered a community like organizers to help organize a seminar series because I was like I can't do this on my own <laughs> um I would mess it up uh, and so basically that's how it got started and ever since then we have like a bunch of little branches like we have this weekly sem- or bi-weekly seminar series and then there was a journal club that's um was during the height of the pandemic was really popular and um we're kind of making some changes now because everyone's back to work so we're trying to um kind of revamp things a little bit to meet the community needs I guess um and uh, we also had a mentoring program and um a bunch of other topics and things like that so it's kind of I love that (laughs) <laughs> Would you say like I, I I love stories of, you know, this happened because of the pandemic because it's like this um, silver lining in a way of what we were all going through. Which I imagine um, I know I felt this way. Um, I was missing conferences and being able to go in person and meet with my colleagues and talk about science and so having this online community kind of filled that gap. Um, for you and other people. Absolutely, yes. And we had a lot of, um, we get a lot of comments about um, people who normally can't attend conferences like in the United States or in Europe, but they're able to see really famous professors such as like Carolyn Luger give talks. And um, we've had a lot of um, really nice comments from people regarding that. And um, so that's been nice. And then also now with, the visa issues in the United States and everything, um, I think it's becoming more and more important to have um, like an online aspect to conferences or at least like an online seminar series. So it's really nice to see um, so many other seminar series pop up too. There's social DNAing as well about like DNA replication and repair. Uh, there's a really cool one about cell size and growth. Um, so there's there's a lot of really interesting ones that have cropped up over the years. Wow, that's incredible. That's really exciting to hear that people are embracing this like online community aspect for folks maybe who haven't even thought about starting something like this do you have any words of wisdom like can you share how you decided to do this over discord and what the kind of community looks like online like what kind of channels you have absolutely yeah so part of the reason i decided to do it on discord was because it felt more casual compared to slack um slack feels very businessy and worky um discord as a lot of people know it's originally mostly used by gamers and i do play video games so i already was using discord for that um so it felt kind of like more you know informal and in a way i was hoping it would be a little bit more accessible too for people who aren't you know like younger people people who could be kind of matriculated into the chromatin field uh, through that means. And then um, we do actually have a template server if anyone wants to use it with um, uh, specific settings. Did did we freeze? Did the video freeze? Oh, Oh, no. (laughs) Sorry. So we do have a template server that people can grab and use to make their own um, as well. We make use of bots to like help, um, you know, moderate the 
chant or the server um we have different channels that we have include like a bunch of different topics um such as like chromatin uh transcription dna replication but then also the most popular topics are usually the bioinformatics channel where people are asking like how do i do this how do i install this there's some really nice people who are very helpful on there we also have um we also have this really cool initiative um, that uh, Vladimir uh, Teif started. Uh, he's one of the main organizers and he's done a lot of really cool work. He has a web really cool website too, um, generegulation.org. Um, and he had the idea of creating a channel to um, request reviews, like peer reviewers for papers. So if, if a paper comes up, uh, editors can post like here's the topic they don't it's pretty um, anonymized so there's some you know I guess conflict avoidance there and people can volunteer to peer review an, an article and that like those messages in that channel are just to say like yes I'm interested or no and they disappear in 24 hours and we use a bot to like clean up the channel so that those um I guess like privacy rules or something. I'm not an editor, so I don't fully know <laughs> Vlad's an editor. Um, so they find peer reviewers that way. And I think it'd be cool if we used that even more as well. And if other communities did that, because that also gives more um, opportunities for, you know, postdocs and graduate students to review articles that they have expertise in. And also I, we keep hearing that it's harder and harder to find reviewers. So this is a good, if you reach out to your community like that, I think that would be, I think that's been cool for us um, or for Vlad, I guess, since he's been trying to find reviewers for one of the journals that he's editing. Um, that's amazing. That's so exciting to hear that your research community is, you know, relying on this um you know chat room discord server to access reviewers i i love hearing stories like that so let's take a step back and if you can for our listeners kind of describe the field that you're in and maybe a few points that um researchers in your area are are interested in understanding absolutely so my general field is basically gene regulation by chromatin environment, like the chromatin environment. I'm really interested in how nucleosomes themselves are positioned and moved around um, in, at promoter regions and in gene bodies. And then I, I study all of this in the context of basically cell state transitions and how chromatin is really reprogrammed to either shut down the genome during the sleepy cell cycle stage called quiescence um, or get reactivated as the cells re-enter the cell cycle. And I think um, a lot of the, one of the major uh, protein complexes I'm interested in is a chromatin remodeler called uh, RISC or in humans switch sniff, um, which was originally identified in yeast. Um, <laughs> and um, it actually is very important for moving around nucleosomes and opening up chromatin. And I think a lot of people and a lot of people who use mammalian system as a model organism uh, will are actually actively trying to understand switch sniff complexes and how all of those complexes are regulated. There are tons of subcomplexes in this complex um, and how it regulates enhancers versus promoters. So a lot of work has been done in yeast to look at promoter regions and now 
people are using look, looking more at like enhancers and um how these how this complex interacts with other histone modifications as well um so it's kind of the the rundown i guess of where people are going um with this complex and is most of your research performed using yeast or do you do a mix of model organisms I personally do mostly in yeast right now, though I have up and going um, I'm a research branch that I'm starting in um, mouse neural stem cells. So I'm trying to understand how quiescence is regulated in those um, states and how um, chromatin is changed during that process as well, which is definitely very interesting in, in my mind, at least. <laughs> but I guess... One of the things I find really fascinating is how much biology that we can uncover in yeast is still applicable to human cells. Is that, would you say that's true? Yes, definitely. Yes. Um, so just like in um, yeast, if you get rid of risk, for example, the nucleosome depleted regions around promoters fill in, so they become less accessible. And then people more recently have been using drugs to target because switch SNF is a uh, mutated in a lot of cancers, so people are creating drugs to target it. Um, if you inhibit the catalytic subunit, um, the if the attack seek for accessibility profiles go become way less accessible. Um, so it's very much like, uh, it's an NDR creator basically. It creates and nucleosome depleted regions in yeast and in mammals, humans. So um, yeah, it's really cool that these things are so conserved. And of course the histones are very conserved. Uh, so it's really nice to be able to study um, like histone uh, residues like amino acids and yeast because they only have two copies of the histone genes whereas in humans we have I think we have like 50 copies and I think flies have like 100 or something so it's pretty hard to make like mutations in those genes so we can do it in yeast so that's great oh very <laughs> cool yeah can you can you elaborate maybe just one or two points on like some of the advantages of working in yeast Absolutely. I'm always happy to do that. <laughs> so, there are so many advantages. <laughs> so many. <laughs> Here we like go. A yeast saleswoman. Yeah. Uh, really cheap to grow. I mean, you grow them basically like E. coli in some way, in some respects. Like you use uh, this YPD growth media. They smell really good when they're actively growing. Like beer and bread um they're really easy like you just grow huge cultures of them and then um they grow really fast the doubling time is like 90 minutes if i remember correctly um quiescent yeast are very easy to grow too because um you can grow them seven days to starve them and then you can purify quiescent populations and they stay in quiescence when you take them out which is one of the key issues sometimes with mammalian tissues, for example. Um, and then yeast are super genetically tractable, though, of course, I can't deny the usefulness of CRISPR and everything that's really been great for, um, you know, mammalian and other organism research. Um, but like I said, like the histone genes, there's only two copies of them, so you can really easily delete them. You can do crosses, so we use yeast as haploids, so we can uh, do a lot of, like, experiments in the haploid system but also in diploids um 
yeah, it's pretty, I, I really love using yeast. And it's also really great for teaching too, because um, like I said, it's not expensive. So if you have undergrads or something, they can mess it up and it's not the end of the world. Um, so awesome. Yeah. <laughs> So you recently posted this really fun poll on Twitter uh, asking folks if RNA Paul 1, 2, or 3 uh, got in a fight, who would win? Can you give us a little backstory on some of the differences between the RNA Pauls, which I'm using the like abbreviated way that scientists often speak of these enzymes, but the full name is RNA polymerase. And actually, that's not even the full name. <laughs> so I'd love, love for you to give us a little primer on like the polymerases and like your relationship with them through your research. Absolutely. I would love to. Yeah. So I was um, thinking about that poll and uh, I was looking at one of the things I'm working on right now is the ribosomal DNA locus, which in yeast has a bunch of different um, like it's very crowded locus for all of the different polymerases. So one, two, and three have targets in the RDNA locus. So I was just sitting there thinking like, whoop, <laughs> let's ask Twitter just to see what happens if people are curious or people had thoughts on which one would win. Um, but basically the three different polymerases are Paul one, RNA polymerase one, two, and three. RNA polymerase 1 uh, is responsible for transcribing the ribosomal DNA to generate ribosomal RNA to create ribosomes. So it's really important for uh, cell growth and producing proteins. Um, it's also uh, responsible, the ribosomal RNA is basically responsible for like 80 to 90% of the total RNA mass in the cell. So wow, one is like really... Uh, Kind of a workhorse. I mean, there are a bunch of repeats of the RDNA too. So we have in yeast, there are like 150 copies. I forget how many copies are in humans, but there's it's a repetitive um, DNA sequence. Okay. And like, how exclusive is that polymerase to that those sites? Pretty exclusive. Um, it does have special transcription factors that recruit it to Paul one promoters. Um, but Paul one, as far as I know, Paul one and Paul three are pretty specific. Whereas Paul two, there have been some interesting studies where if you deplete, I forget the exact specifics. Um, sorry, I'm going a little off topic, but it's still no, it's okay. This is um, super interesting. <laughs> I think it was from Bob Rader's lab. And then there was another paper, I think looking similarly, I could, People, the the viewers should Google and fact check me. Fact check me, but um, I think yes, you, viewers, please fact check us. <laughs> I think if you deplete either, I think it was Paul three, maybe um, Paul two might be able to go and transcribe some Paul three type, or at least some non-coding like cryptic transcripts at Paul three promoters. Something very interesting like that. So I think Paul two is like a little bit more like I guess permissive. permissive? Yeah, permissive in terms of where it transcribes. But as far as I know, Paul 1 and Paul 3 are pretty specific. And Paul 3 is specific for what type of transcripts? Paul 3 prefer or transcribes the tRNAs and the smallest ribosomal RNAs. So uh, 
RNA transcript and then a few other RNAs that like form like new uh, RNA protein complexes involved in splicing and processing. Um, and it's also the biggest um, RNA polymerase. So um, how big is it? Oh, gosh, actually, I don't know off the top of my head. Like, oh, good. <laughs> I should know this. So. But but yeah, I'm so curious now, actually, I kind of want to like Google this. I know. I, I I was really excited about all of the answers that we got. I felt like more people were excited to fight or like defend Paul 1 and Paul 3. Like one person mentioned, which I thought was very interesting. I kind of knew, but I actually didn't realize Paul 3 was sensitive to um, alpha manitin, um, which basically inhibits Paul 2 and has been known to be a Paul 2 inhibitor. Um, and Paul 1 is very resist is resistant to alpha manitin. Um, but apparently Paul 3 is a little bit um, sensitive, which I actually didn't realize. Um, so I learned a lot from people commenting. I love asking these like weird open-ended questions that force people to make a difficult decision because literally we need all three RNA polymerases. And some people did, um, you know, say like, oh, well, you need ribosomes to make Paul too, so Paul one wins. So it's kind of fun to see everyone. Yeah, that's so. It's such an interesting question too, because it it just yeah, it makes you think about your understanding of these systems and um yeah, it's just a fascinating aspect of like our biology and and cellular biology too, right? Like how did these systems arise? You know, <laughs> like and and we we have to have them all functioning you know it's it's fascinating and i really think it's one of the best use cases for twitter in a way is like this crowdsourcing of information and like uh provocative questions and and getting feedback from people i find uh to be really fun so that's awesome i love that you <laughs> you pose that question um, so getting back to like the in real life community that you're in, you're at the Fred Hutch um, for your postdoc in the Sukiyama lab. Can you tell us a little bit about um, how you decided to, to do your postdoc at the Fred Hutch and also what that environment is like? Absolutely. I would love to. Um, so I, a little bit of previous background, I've always been kind of like in the really basic science chromatin transcription area. And um, Toshi Sukiyama's research really was, is very important in the chromatin. And uh, he was actually one of the people who discovered ATP dependent chromatin remodeling activity when he was a postdoc in Carl Wu's lab. Um, and so when I was in grad school in Karen Arndt's lab, I was really interested in transcription elongation and like how RNA polymerase passages through nucleosomes. But I really didn't know, like, I really was very interested in chromatin remodeling. And um, Toshi's lab uh, actually had recently kind of, well, in the last five years, by the time I started, um, he had really switched over to studying this very interesting biological question, which was chromatin regulation in quiescence, which is this reversible G0 state where cells can 
um, basically stop dividing, but then according to certain signals can start dividing again. I just thought it was really cool that, you know, he's gone through hardcore biochemistry. He was one of the earliest adapters to genomics. He's done a lot of really cool stuff on DNA replication, um, which was an area that I was interested in starting to coming from transcription, looking in other areas of chromatin regulation. Um, and so he had this really cool paper from this amazing scientist, um, Jeff McKnight, um, who really showed that this one histone deacetylase, um, RPD3, it's normally non-essential in yeast. Um, you can delete it and the yeast grow fine. But when cells enter quiescence, they they need RPD3. So that it's essential for quiescence entry. So like during evolution, it's interesting to think about like, okay, why do we have these? I mean, why do we have these genes? We're all studying everything and cycling cells. Like in, in yeast research, we usually use like log logarithmic growth cells. Um, but they found this new function for this protein where it was like basically retargeted to all promoters and it deacetylated the genome. So the genome got stripped of histone acetyl marks. And I just thought that was really fascinating. And I wanted to look at how cells basically wake up from that process. So how do um, cells reactivate their transcriptome there? Um, Fred Hutch is a fabulous place too, because we have a lot of chromatin and transcription people here. We have Steve Hennikoff, Steve Hahn, um, who are both awesome uh, transcription and chromatin biologists. We're really lucky there. And then um, we have our chromatin club, which is every month, which is great. Um, so it's a really great place to be a postdoc in, or a scientist, I guess, in the chromatin field. Um, we're very collegial and collaborative. We have joint lab meeting with the Han lab too. So it's been pretty great. Um. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I did a rotation at Fred Hutch when I was a grad student and just always uh, admired the kind of culture and community that they've um, enriched there like um beer hour was always really popular on fridays i don't even know if they've brought that back yet since the pandemic but mm -hmm. it always felt like uh such a valuable time to talk about science with with your peers and one of the things i've been contemplating is like how important that system is that you're doing your science in and like those conversations and um just the aspect of serendipity and collaboration uh, being important for things like discovery. Um, so yeah, I, I, that's awesome that you've landed at a place with, with such a great environment and also very interesting history with yeah. regards to chromatin and gene regulation. Um, it's really nice. I mean, I think the most important thing for being a postdoc or trainee of any kind, like a grad student um, technician, is just being in a really good environment where the people are kind. And I think the Hutch is definitely one of those. You don't see people like being super competitive or anything. It's just, just really great place to be. So, yeah, <laughs> that's awesome. Um, so as far as the science, I'm curious to pick your brain about what you see as some of the major discoveries in the field of gene regulation in the last few years like if 
if there's a standout paper for you that you thought, wow, this really makes a leap for us as far as our understanding of gene regulation. Absolutely. Yeah. So I would be, I feel like even though I'm not a structural biologist by any means, I feel like I would be remiss to not mention the cryo-EM boom, uh, especially because how, you know, how it's really a lot of those really important structures um, in the past, like five, I almost, yeah, five years maybe, um, have been solved using cryo-EM. Like we have switch sniff bound to the nucleosome, like high resolution risk bound. We had some lower resolution ones before the technique technology got more advanced. Um, and then now people are, you know, tr- getting really good structures for different transcription in- intermediates, um, different nucleosome intermediates. Um, and I think I think all of those papers are very important for us to look at um, and understand. I can't tell you what about cryoEM changed, um, but the recent boom um, has really given us a lot of insights there um, in the chrom- and I think a lot of it has been done in the chromatin field, which has been great. Um, I think also I can't ignore uh, phase separation area. And I think um, Gita Narlikar, I've actually, I remember sitting in uh, 2016, I think, Snowbird ASBMB transcription meeting, and she presented um, the, li- the liquid droplet formation by HP1 and how it phase separated. And I just remember her showing like pictures of the EP tubes with the, I guess, the phase separated stuff. Um, And I just think, you know, that's really changed a lot of the field and how people are thinking now. And just in the last, like, what, five, six years. So I think those are some of the bigger um, things. And then um, I think one of my favorite papers recently to come out too is from uh, Siavash Kurdistani's lab where he actually found, they found that H3, I think it's H3 and H4 tetramer is actually a copper reductase. So it has, so it's gene regulation adjacent. So it actually, these histones have functions other than um, in regulating gene, gene compaction and or DNA packaging. So I think that's really cool. Um, and his talk on that is actually on the Fragile Nucleosome YouTube channel. So if people are interested, they can look at it. But I just thought it was so cool. It's such a like um, a show of creativity to like think outside of, you know, the nucleus, which is hard for us to do. Um, so I think, you know, I think also like generally speaking, like pay- proteins that have these essential functions and, you know, I love seeing people looking outside of um, the nucleus. And like, I know that's a little bit like heretic to think about as a chromatin person, but it's really cool. Cause I mean, we've evolved these proteins, so they must have multiple functions. I mean, I guess they don't need to, I'm not an evolutionary biologist, so I don't know, <laughs> but um, you know um, yeah. So switch sniff, I think also um, there's a cool paper from Van Reck the Van Reckham lab, Capucine Van Reckham, I think I'm pronouncing her name right. She found that it can actually interact with the new, with the ribosome in um, like breast cancer cells, if I remember correctly. So I think these new ideas are the, are the thing that I'm most excited about, basically. <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting. And I, I think that's one of the areas where I find, um, 
innovation to really be present in the lab because it took a scientist, you know, at the bench, presumably to think, to look for alternative, um, you know, use cases for some of these enzymes and, and study that and, and pull that apart. Um, I find that really exciting because I guess one of the things I felt about the field of gene regulation, you know, back when I was working in it more regularly was just how incremental a lot of the studies felt. Um, (laughs) And, you know, we could get into why that's, why that is. Yeah. Um, But, you know, the field, this, you know, I guess like circa 2015, we had a big reliance on big data sets. Um, And I think what was happening was that we were generating a lot of data, but not necessarily giving ourselves the time to understand the data to a great enough degree. And so it kind of had this like washout effect of a lot of research getting published with not that much signal is how I would describe it. (laughs) And not to be overly negative, I think like all of these new assays and these sequencing assays that were coming online uh, have been really exciting for understanding the biology. Um, But yeah, I think you make a good point about cryo-EM advancing the field because it was almost like the picture that's worth a thousand words in the sense that we went from this sequence level or you know poor structural association level data for these proteins where we know okay both of these proteins are binding at this location in the genome to now being able to visualize in essentially a photographic way how they're interacting, how they're touching each other on on the DNA. And um, yeah, it's hugely valuable for us in how we think about these things. So um, definitely some important advances in the last five years or so. It's very, very exciting. So yeah, that's awesome. Um, Let me just check my questions here. Okay, so I want to give people a sense, a little bit more of a sense of like what your life is like as a scientist, what your day-to-day looks like. So can you share, um, you know, let's say in the last couple years, what a great day of science looks like for you? (laughs) My favorite day is getting sequencing data back. Um, so we're really lucky that we have the genomics core here. So um, I submit sequencing and then my fa- a great day is like getting the data back and like actually taking the time to analyze it. Um, that's probably my favorite day. Um, it can also be very sad, um, but I think, yeah. And then like just getting those fast Q files aligned and everything is just always like the most it's exciting and I like sometimes we'll like open the BAM files and IGV the integrated 
genome viewer to just look at the the peaks or whatever even if they're not normalized yet because I'm just like I need to see what it is just like that moment and like watching like my scripts running and stuff like that just like waiting to see because like the pipetting is great but um you kind of you know at this stage it's like okay well if I just want to see what everything looks like. And, you know, for genomics, like you don't, you don't get Western blots or anything that you can like develop and like see, like, it's just, it feels like it takes a little bit longer to like get your answer. Um, but yeah, so like, you know, I do both wet lab work and computer work. So I think, um, you know, that there's like this like build up to get the data and it's just like, always so nerve-wracking submitting sequencing to um yeah um and can then, you give us a little backstory of like what goes into that type of experiment like how long you know you're growing your yeast cells you're manipulating them somehow and then um what types of assays are you running are you doing chip seek attack seek and yeah. <laughs> yeah just like kind of the the length of an experiment like that well, thankfully, since yeast grow so quickly, it doesn't take too long to grow them, though I will say that quiescent cells, there's a lot of buildup. I mean, they are easier to isolate than some things, but, you know, you grow them for seven days and you have to get, um, you have to purify them over a gradient, hope that you get enough quiescent cells for your assay. For me, I do a ton of time courses because I'm studying quiescence X's, so I have to, like, grow a lot of quiescent yeast purify a lot of them like it takes like all day long sometimes to pure just get enough q cell quiescent cells and then i have to like put them into yeast media again to reactivate them and then take time points where i usually cross link for chip seek or mna seek not as many people do mna seek anymore but because i'm so interested in nucleosome structure um i want to actually look at like how mna uh, digests the DNA around nucleosomes to kind of get it nucleosome structure, like uh, fragile nucleosomes, which I guess are controversial still, um, or, you know, other like nucleosome intermediates, like hexasomes and such. Um, but yeah, so I mostly do chip seek and MNA seek. Um, I have done some cut and run with the yeast. It's yeast are a little bit okay. One of the drawbacks for yeast, I will say, is that they have a cell wall, which is good and bad. It's good because they're stable cells; they don't break very easily. Um, but it's annoying because you have to digest the cell wall. In the case of um, cut and run and MNAS seek, and for quiescent cells, they have a very thick cell wall because they're they. Be, get that way because they need to survive for a long time so that can be a pain so we usually do chip seek because we can feed beat them and then sonicate and everything and so Got that's it. really well for us um even though we are at the hutch and we don't do cut and tag or cut and run but yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, that's because of the yeast cell wall and then also just for other reasons too um but generally for me i'm doing a lot of chip seek and mna seek um uh, and a little bit of RNA-seq too. We do a lot of, um, because quiescent cells stop transcribing during the seven day process, um, they have a lot of RNA that's stored in like granules and such. Um, but if you, but we're really interested in like the nascent transcripts. So what we do is we label the RNA with an uracil analog and we can do click chemistry, which just got Carolyn Bertozzi just got yeah. 
So we use click chemistry all the time uh, to get RNA transcripts that are new and sequence those too. So those are the three major genomics assays that I pretty much do. Um, and it can be pretty labor intensive, especially in content, the context of time courses. <laughs> I definitely wear tennis shoes that day <laughs> when you're running. I feel like I'm running around <laughs> back and forth to the centrifuge and set in the liquid nitrogen. Um, but yeah, so um, that way, that's another reason I'm very happy to have my data because then I could sit down. <laughs> <laughs> so that's also the best day for that reason too. Love it. Um, Love it. Yeah. How... I'm curious for yourself, because I, when I was a grad student, I was doing computational and experimental work. How different are those processes for you? And how do you adjust from a period of experimental work to one of computational? Oh my gosh, it's so hard. Like, I still struggle with it. Like, I mean, I... I didn't even know how to use the terminal when I first started as a postdoc. Like I didn't know anything <laughs> like, and so, um, you know, it was a bit of a learning curve for me. And then um, still like switching mindsets of doing analysis versus bench work. Cause the other thing is I feel like you can analyze forever. Like I just like, <laughs> depending on the experiment, like you can just keep looking for things like, oh, I didn't look at this size fragment for these MNAs digests or whatever. Like, let's go back and look at that. And so like, you, at some point it's like, okay, Christine, you need to go back to the bench <laughs> and start by putting. And like, it does take me like maybe a day to like kind of get back to normal and in both directions, like analysis wise and pipetting wise. I mean, yeah, I try to run scripts while I pipette too, especially for like just the initial alignment of the FASTQ files and stuff. But, um, you know, doing the hardcore analysis, like you just kind of have to sit and like, I'm not very good at like going back and forth, like walking over to my bench and then going back to my computer. It's just, I'm not very good at that. Some people are great at it. And I'm, I really envy those people. <laughs> what were what were some of the standout resources for you as you were learning how to do computational biology? Yeah, so um, friends, <laughs> those are the number one resource. So um, I had some friends who were like ahead of me in terms of like already we're we're doing genomics um, analysis, um, and then the Hutch itself has, um, and I'm sure other places have this too, where they have like the bioinformatics um, department has workshops on how to use Python, how to do R stuff. Um, and then also um, we have like consultants as well that we can meet with to like be like, oh, is my analysis right? Am I doing this correctly? Like, should I do this? Um, because, you know, you'd be I feel like it's can be surprising how like hard it is to figure out exactly what people do in papers. And so the best things that I've seen also are like when people share their bash scripts to make the exact figure in their paper. There was one from um, actually from Frank Pugh's lab and Sean Mahoney, I think also, I think it was a grad student in his lab that collaborated. They had this one paper where they had like a bash script and like for each figure. And so that was really helpful to me because I could figure out how they did their analysis exactly. And so that was really helpful. And then- Wow. Yeah. And they had that like in the paper, I mean, let's say it's published 
in eLife or something, there's a link to like their GitHub repository where they then have that script. Yeah, so I don't think that specific paper had a GitHub, but most do, or a lot of a lot of mm -hmm. them do. I think these just had the .sh files in the supplement or something like that. I think I just remember. I remember very distinctly using them to like initially analyze um, some data. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, I love but that. GitHub repositories are great too. I really needed to make mine. <laughs> <laughs> telling me to do it I'm like yes so because I use them too from other people there's this also really awesome postdoc in the Hennikoff lab named Yi Shang and she has tutorials on cut and tag like on her I think on her github or on her website too and those are fantastic for analyzing um cut and tag data um because I I've done a little bit with a collaborator um analyzing some data for them and then um, yeah, I'm really grateful to like the hardcore computational people for making like really clear tutorials. Protocols.io, I think also for cut and run, I think they have mm -hmm. um, their uh, protocol there. And yeah. Yeah. So those all of those resources really helped a lot. Um, mm -hmm. Very grateful. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to protocols.io. That was, I mean, that was, I think, just founded maybe as I was wrapping up grad school and um, Pete Skane, who developed the cut and run method, uh, he was, I mean, one of his real strengths was writing these protocols and he actually taught me how to do chip seek and, um, and cut and run. And uh, yeah, I think it's, it's awesome that the Hennikoff lab has continued that tradition and culture of sharing uh, really well-written protocols and uh, bioinformatics pipelines for analyzing this new type of data, uh, such as the cut and run or cut and tag data. Um, because well, for folks that are less familiar with the ChIP-seq methodology, um, essentially what the, the assay is doing is you're relying on an antibody that's targeting a particular protein that's binding the genome and pulling that down and then performing sequencing on the, t the pieces of DNA that it was bound to. Um, and so there's, you know, specific ways to process that type of data compared to something like RNA-seq. And I think one of the powerful aspects of cut and run as compared to traditional chip-seq um, was that you produced a lot of lot smaller fragments and you had a much higher signal to noise as far as these regions that were bound by these proteins. So um, you could look at things like RNA-Pol2 or a particular transcription factor and it actually, um, you know, some of the, the leaps for our understanding of these interactions of these proteins with DNA um, happened as a result of the cut and run assay because we had much higher resolution of the binding of um, particular transcription factors and we're able to see the peaks of uh, binding for the first time because we had uh, this better resolution. So it's super exciting. It's an assay that um, I've onboarded at a couple places I've worked now and, um, you know, obviously has some some caveats for trying to apply it to yeast, as you mentioned, with the cell wall being uh, challenging, I I haven't worked with yeast in a long time, but I imagine poking holes in the yeast uh, is 
a lot of trouble. <laughs> uh, it's definitely doable in log cells where their cell wall is not as strong. Um, but quiescent cells, they're they're really resistant. So yeah, <laughs> they're they're tricky guys. <laughs> so um, yeah, and I'm curious too, like which pathways you found as far as this waking up process yeah so this is um yeah I'm really excited about this research area because um the quiescent cells they they do have some transcription um I forget the number of genes but it's a handful of some really highly transcribed genes in quiescence but for the most part the genome is quiescent like it's not transcribing um but I got really excited because when I put the cells directly into fresh media within three minutes which I think was the very fastest time point I could get I could see going back to Paul 2 which has a CTD a C-terminal tail um that gets phosphorylated to activate it um there's no phosphorylation in quiescence because it's inactive polymerase. But I could see by Western blot that the phosphorylation happened really quickly when I refed the, the yeast. Because um, I think I forgot to mention that quiescence entry includes starving the yeast. And so then they become quiescent because the conditions are sad for them. So they go into hardcore survival mode. Um, but yeah, they started transcription really quickly, and I was really surprised by that. Um, and so kind of understanding this like global off state to essentially global on state, like a lot of the genes turn on, like more than half the genome is transcribed within five minutes, um, wow. which is crazy. And I like, I love thinking about like all the different mechanisms that could be causing that um one of the things that i was really interested in was like how chromatin remodelers chromatin could help mediate that and the big thing that i found was that the risk chromatin remodeler was actually like poised what i think in an inactive state and then it helped prepare the genome for quiescence exit to like move shift the nucleosome a little bit <laughs> which is like a pretty big deal even though it's like not that big of a distance change but it allows tbp to bind and pol2 to bind and allow for transcription to happen but you know it, i i'm very interested in like there's a lot more questions to be had so like rna polymerase like is it just hanging around like sampling the genome for example like why is it able to bind so quickly like you know i haven't looked i would love to look like under the microscope and see like maybe there's phase separation i hate to mm -hmm. invoke that controversial but I would love to like think about that because it's such a rapid change yeah um, can you induce quiescence genetically or does it have to come from the environment that's a really good question so there's some really cool work done from the lab that's like I'm started collaborating with really recently um Patrick Pattison's lab they have a really cool preprint um on bioarchive right now um where they deplete this uh, histone acetyl transferase called Cat5, and that that drives the cells to go into quiescence. And this is actually this is in the context of um, glioblastomas, stem-like cells. Um, and yeah, they see that they enter G0 um, when they get rid of uh, this acetyl transferase. So the histone acetylation is down too. So that's one way that they've done it. In our lab, 
we haven't really done that. We've mostly induced quiescence, as far as I know, um, through the starvation process. But I do have a mutant um, that I don't know what it's doing yet. But I have one mutant where if I delete the gene, I get way more quiescent cells and they exit quiescence way faster. I don't know what's going on, but I'm very excited to like kind of uncover what's going on there. So interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to ask a provocative question for a basic science researcher like yourself um what implications do you think that this type of research could have for human health yeah okay so I think the most easy one to link would be the idea that there could be pathogenic yeast. I mean, there are pathogenic yeasts that are similar to Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which is the model that we use. Those guys can go into quiescence and like sit in the lungs, for example, and like exit, you know, we need to be able to kill them. The problem is when cells are non-dividing, it can be hard to kill them through some means where they are where we're basically using drugs that inhibit actively dividing cells, for example. Um, the other thing that's problematic is that um, the yeast or the quiescent cells are really resistant to things too. So I think trying to understand these pathways in yeast is a, and is most easily drawn to the potential usage in like pathogenic yeast, for example. Um, but there are, you know, conserved paradigms between yeast and mammalian cells, like the histone acetylation going down during quiescence. Um, and um, I think in um, quiescent immune cells, I forget which ones. Um, they also have chromatin compaction and deacetylation as well. So there's some paradigm that's very conserved. Um, and then it's just gene regulation at that point and chromatin compaction. And so I think, you know, it, I think there can be some definite uh, applications from yeast research there. Um, but I think also, I do, I mean, I'm, also am starting a branch of research in mammalian cell systems. So I do see the import that I do appreciate the stark differences in these processes. Um, but I'm very interested in both too, just because um, they both have very different quiescence entry mechanisms too. Um, so I could believe I could talk a lot about that, but um, I will try not to ramble too much, but that's kind of like the gist of what I was thinking. <laughs> yeah. What about like, just again, kind of brainstorming here. What about our understanding of something like intermittent fasting? Oh gosh. Yeah. That's so interesting. So yeah, I mean, yeast and like caloric restriction and aging and all that is definitely a whole can of worms <laughs> that I am not super well versed in, but it's very fascinating. Um, you know, I think yeast aging, replicative aging at least. So there, there's a lot of literature in starving yeast and how they age and how they can become more aging resistant or whatever. Um, but there is definitely caveats to that. Like, for example, there's one process that in yeast that does not happen in mammalian cells, for mm. example. 
our DNA looping out into circles happens during yeast aging. And like, I think, I think chronological, I think caloric restriction like helps prevent that. It could be wrong. I'm not super well-versed in that literature. Um, All good. Just yeah. interesting. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> very interesting. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of cool research going on in that area, especially with like um, metabolism and how histones themselves can be like sinks for metabolites. um, Mm -hmm. And so I think when you starve cells, there's a lot of like readout or like crosstalk with histone acetylation and other histone marks um, that happens during quiescence and then also during starvation. It's very interesting um and it could very well um translate into mammalian cells like they're you know they're in a tumor there are some cells that are starved and you know weird stuff happens yeah (laughs) there could definitely be parallels there sure (laughs) um yeah super interesting do you use metabolomics in your research at all I would love to. Um, I would definitely love to because there's a lot of interesting changes that happen as yeast mm-hmm. as well. But it's definitely an area that I would love to like find collaborators on um, or learn it myself, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. The lab I was in uh, in grad school, Nathan Price's group, did a lot of um, flux balance analysis of of cells and that kind of thing so kind of an interesting area and I know there have been a few companies you know started to to help researchers generate metabolomics data um kind of an interesting area so um before we wrap up I wanted to get your thoughts on your relationship with publishing your research what that process is like for you Um, You just had a paper in eLife, so I'm very curious to get your thoughts on the recent eLife announcement about preprints and um, yeah, just kind of get your thoughts as a basic researcher whose career and, and, um, you know, advancement uh, relies on things like publishing papers. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, I've always been a huge fan of open access. Um, All three of my first author papers are in open access journals. It's always been like, if I have control over it, that's been like my number one thing. Um, And, you know, can you can you expand a little bit? Because I think a lot of people don't necessarily know this outside of science, but that's a choice you made as a researcher to publish open access or in particular journals that are open access, correct? Yes. Yes. So I really wanted to make sure that my papers would be free forever. Also, it's annoying to have to log on to the VPN to be able to access your own paper. So, I mean, you know, practically speaking, I mean, that's a little tongue in cheek, but you know, it's easy to just get your paper if it's open access. So like, oh, what antibody did I use? Let's just download this. Um, But honestly, like, I think it's really important. Taxpayers are paying for all of our research. I think it's very important for everyone to be able to read it, especially for, you know, people in lower income countries too like it's unfair if they don't have access to the papers that their colleagues are generating um which is another reason why so i guess the process of now since bioarchive is a thing i don't think it was a thing for my first paper um but i always 
post my paper on preprint pre server on bioarchive and then submit it to the journal um usually at the same time so usually like actually back to twitter there's an interesting tweet about how if you're not embarrassed of your first preprint first iteration of that. your preprints you publish too late and i kind of appreciate that because i'm definitely someone that like wants to wait until it's super good or as good as i can make it you know i'm and, you know, so usually I post it when I submit it to a journal. So I can definitely appreciate like, okay, well, really, you should have maybe like, if we want to speed up science, you know, maybe we should post things earlier. And that doesn't mean posting bad work, like, you know, don't post something without replicates and controls, or at least that's how I'm going to view it. But maybe the story is not done yet. You know, like maybe you don't, you don't have the complete mechanism yet. And I think Honestly, I think that's cool if people post their preprints early like that. In fact, I'm going to try to do that here in a couple weeks, hopefully, depending on my sequencing data, um, post something a little early because I think that's a cool idea. Um, and then, you know, eventually, you know, maybe you'll get feedback from the community. Like, maybe they'll be like, oh, you really, what if this happens? And then like, oh, yeah, I can do that. And then you can do it and then send it to the journal if you want. Um yeah, so that's kind of how I hope to publish in the future, like maybe get things out a little bit faster. Um, and then, yeah, the eLife change. I'm excited about it, honestly. I mean, I know there are caveats and there's going to be growing pains. Like, I think a lot of people are concerned that without the, so I guess the change is that the editors will decide if the paper will be peer reviewed and then nothing else will happen after that, aside from well, no other like decisions will be made after peer review. So the reviews will be posted alongside the paper. And then there will be a summary, I think, um, saying like, okay, this paper is like great, mediocre, whatever. I forget exactly what their terminology was. Um, and then there will be that summary. And honestly, I think that's cool. I think people are concerned that this is going to be a big gatekeeping thing because then it's like up to the editors um but in my mind there already was that gatekeeping of whether or not the paper would go out for review but i can kind of see like you know like reviewers saving a paper like are i mean i think one of the things a lot of people love about elife is that the reviewers would have a discussion amongst themselves and maybe change their tone uh depending on what the other reviewers thought mm -hmm. i think elife is the only journal that i could be wrong um maybe more journals will do that now if they don't already so i think people are sad too i feel like um i mean i don't want to like ascribe feelings to other people but just from the outcries on twitter like people i think i think some people felt really betrayed by the change um which i thought was very interesting um i mean science is changing all the time and i think the way publishing should change and you know i think elife is cool for doing this provocative change i mean i mm -hmm. think the only way be able to move forward is to make changes and whether or not this is a good one or not we'll see but I kind of just want to you know give it the benefit of the doubt I don't think like the leaders of eLife are looking to make publishing gatekeeping and like worse like I just can't imagine that's their motivation but I do feel like yeah. some people a little angry about that but then there are legit concerns like the editor is going to be the one to decide um in in some respects but the cool thing is you know we have freedom 
to submit our papers elsewhere. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's almost like people forgot that there's like this whole wide world of journals that exist beyond e-life in their uh, way of discussing this paradigm shift. Yeah. And I think, I think e-life people, I think they'll listen to the community. I mean, let's just see how it works and if it doesn't, they'll change it, you know? So yeah, I I have optimism. I feel like. (laughs) Yeah. It's such an interesting, I mean, I'm actually just, this just occurred to me now as you talked about the two-step process, because most papers, um, you know, first are sent to an editor. The editor decides if they're going to be sent out for review from their journal, which we could get into the, some of the challenges there, but um, a lot of journals are struggling to find reviewers, and these reviewers are often uh, part of this editor's network in a way. So um, part of, you know, a given journal's power comes from the network of reviewers that they can tap into. Um, and as people get busy and cognizant of this being a free uh, system of, you know, you're not paid to review a paper, um, there might be I'm going to assume that there's differences in how often someone says yes to reviewing a nature paper versus another journal. Mm -hmm. Um, And so then it goes out for review. The reviewers come back. And this is one of the, to me, one of the most valuable steps as an author is to get those reviews of your paper. And they say, you know, they really work to to poke holes in what's missing. a lot for my myself as a reviewer, a lot of times I'm asking for, you know, statistical information that might not be there in the paper. Um, is the code accessible like you talked about? Um, you know, even just the writing, like the general overall story of the paper and how accessible it is for me to understand as someone who's in the field. Um, and those things I think can really make a paper better. That's part of why I think peer review is important is because this process of having three experts in your field review your work, uh, I think inherently makes it better. Um, so then after that feedback is given uh, to the editor and the authors, they can choose to decide how, uh, how much they want to improve the paper or not. Um, so sometimes they're asked to do additional experiments, which for these types of studies like you've been talking about with sequencing those can be very expensive experiments you might not even have the money to do them uh you might not have the mice to do them right like these things are are all uh challenges in the system um and so they might come back and say hey we're gonna go ahead and try to get this accepted without additional experimentation um and then a very you know realistic uh, thing that would happen is that the paper is not accepted and they have to then go submit it to another journal and go through, you know, restart the whole process. Mm-hmm. So with eLife now, that paper that's not accepted would still be shared um, and the reviews shared. Mm-hmm. And again, I think those reviews add a ton of information and value to the system. Um, I agree completely. I mean, I know that there was a study that showed, I think preprints, preprints don't change too much between before and after peer review. 
but I mean, there are cases where the paper, like, I've had a case where a reviewer was like, is this really, like, happening? And so I repeated an experiment with, like, an additional control, and, like, it was, no, actually, it was, you know, actually not a thing. So I took it out of the paper, and I was thankful to the reviewer for that. So, um, you know, I think peer review is very helpful, and I'm glad I mean, it's a double or not a double, but there's a pro and con because there can be some people with agendas that are like, oh, a competitor, let's slow them down and ask for a million experiments. Mm-hmm. There's some really toxic reviews too. Like I've heard some pretty gnarly stories about like, you know, pretty horrible things people say. So one thing I do hope that eLife does, and I think this is a really serious concern that was raised. I mean, there were a lot of concerns that I think were really important is what do you do when there's like a really nasty review and that's publicized? Mm. Oh, I think being a woman in science also kind of sucks sometimes because of this, uh, because there's a lot of sexism that happens. You know, um, I've heard stories where there are reviewers that say like, don't you need this male collaborator or whatever? Like, I think that's a legit concern or like there's just some really nasty reviews. And are those going to be like censored or something? <laughs> like, I don't know. I think I maybe Elife has addressed that, but um, interesting. I'm kind of nervous about that part. Well, I mean, what if there's more self censorship? I mean, Elife already publishes all the reviews of yeah. accepted papers. It's just that now the rejected ones will be shared as well, which is like, I think it's I think it's a good thing in a way. Like, you know, we could get into the kind of ethical and philosophical debate of that but like yeah it's almost like um the person going to the restaurant and treating the staff poorly will now be revealed you know like on a science level that is true I don't I I that is true and I think yeah I think posting reviews is really good um like I think Embo Journal also does as well um Mm -hmm. I don't know. Is I don't think the names are going to be associated with the reviews for eLife, um, but that would be one way to help mitigate it, I guess. But then there are, of course, caveats like, oh, if junior person doesn't want to get, you know, outed as the person that said this senior person's experiment was bad for whatever reason. Like, oh, it's so mm-hmm. complicated. I, I have- well, and also, like, I mean is it going to be harder for them to find reviewers? It's already so much work. Like to, I reviewed an eLife paper this past spring and it took me like 10 hours (laughs) of solid work of like writing both the feedback to the authors. And then you write a public review. That's essentially like a well-written summary statement of like your thoughts on it. And it takes so much time. Like, And you we're going to have to start incentivizing people to spend that time somehow, I think. I honestly agree completely. I think it's pretty, like, I have a huge problem, and a lot of people have a huge problem with the fact that we're creating all the content for yeah. the journals. And maybe this shouldn't be in the podcast, but I don't see how different it is from Elon Musk asking people to pay for a blue check mark. <laughs> yeah, I think that's such an interesting point. He creates content for Twitter. He's yep. thing that people read and view, and they make yeah. money off of it. No, it, it it's a completely ridiculous 
what Aided. what some okay. call a triple pay system of the scientist is paying to have their content published and then um the reviewers are providing their time for free and then on the other side of it often people are having to pay to then access the content and it's just doesn't make any sense from like a scientific ethics perspective in in my eyes hopefully (laughs) hopefully it's changing i mean the white house made this announcement in august about um needing everything to be open access by i think 2025 Mm -hmm. who knows how they're gonna be able to do that (laughs) but at least the government is on our side and agreeing that like okay our taxpayer money is funding this research we should be able to read it for free right i i really hope that is yeah i think that's so important and like i understand it costs money to publish journals like maintain website you know um pay editors um i think that's important but the amount of money they make is just exorbitant one thing i am concerned about the open access mandate is how expensive open access journals are so i do worry about people with less labs with less money i think the real answer was like what mike eisen has been kind of advocating for decades now is like government preprint server i think um i mean we can read his articles more about the specifics but Mm -hmm. Now, if our taxpayers are paying for the publication. Why don't we just pay for the pub- like the minimum cost of the publication instead of this for-profit? I mean, eLife is nonprofit. Their nonprofit journals are great. Yeah. Um, the thing that I worry about is you know how much money that's going and like we're not getting compensated. Oh, is, this is a really interesting <laughs> idea. You're, I mean, like. A, like government sponsored journals could be really valuable right like if the government set up a division of like we're gonna have 10 journals that span the top 10 most important fields to us and they're gonna be super rigorous we're gonna have great editors that we financially support um you know, hopefully nice websites, yeah. <laughs> although <laughs> not sure the government can do that, but <laughs> that is the concern. I mean, there's always give and take too. I mean, I can understand why, like no one, like, I think, yeah, I think in the nineties or something, Mike Geisen and probably other people, I just know he's the most vocal one um, have, about it, like raising the idea of government papers. Um, but mm-hmm. like, I just, yeah, like, I don't know why we don't do that. I mean, I know why prestige and it's really scary to change. Like people yeah. are scared of the e-life change. Mm-hmm. And I understand I'm not ridiculing those people at all, but it, you know, change is hard. I think, yeah. I think people don't like drastic changes either. Like they have to like evolve, slowly evolve things. Yeah. From our perspective, because it's like, just do it, you know, like just mm-hmm. do it. Like, why don't y'all just change right Take now? Take the jump. <laughs> you know, it can, it's one of the most infuriating things for me as an academic, I think. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I feel like this is a, a great note for us to wrap up on. I'm sure we could keep talking about this for hours. <laughs> um, but I really appreciate your perspectives and, you know, coming from it as an academic and basic researcher 
and I love that you are so open-minded to change and hopeful for the future. So um, I think that's a great, uh, great sentiment to end on. So um, for our listeners, where can folks find you? Do you have any uh, shout outs or, or things that you want people to check out? Yeah, so um, I'm, I, I'm on Twitter probably too much, though I guess there's going to be some crazy change. Speaking of change, I guess, with the big change there, um, I guess I started a Mastodon, but I haven't really used it. But for now, Twitter, um, Fragile Nucleosome Twitter, if you go to their page, there's the Discord server invite link there too. So I'll probably be there more over time as well. Um, those are the major places, I think. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. And recommend people check out the Fragile Nucleosome YouTube as well. Tons of great talks in the field of gene regulation. Um, it's just a great resource for folks to learn about that space. And thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. I really appreciate it. It's been fun. Thank you. <laughs> that wraps up my interview with Christine Cucinata. Thanks so much for listening to Lady Scientist podcast. If you enjoyed this interview, I recommend you check out some of our other interviews with awesome lady scientists. All of our content is available on YouTube or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for listening.